Now, this evening, um, as we continue to remember and reflect on the Lord's death, I want to continue in that vein by further unpacking and explaining the story of the two thieves. And as we do that, what we will discover this evening is that every single person in this room and every single person watching online and every single person on planet Earth right now is represented by one of these two men, is represented by one of these two crosses. And so even as we work through this story, what I want you to imagine in your mind's eye is that behind these two men, behind their, these two crosses, there's literally uh, two lines that form. And every person in this room watching online on earth is either behind one thief or behind the other. The question is, and the question that we all have to wrestle with this, to, tonight is, which thief are you represented by? Which cross are you represented by? Now, in order to unpack the difference between the two thieves and the two crosses, I want to look at this passage under two headings. We're going to begin tonight by looking at the two thieves. And then after we look at the two thieves, we're going to conclude by looking at the two crosses. But I want to start this evening by looking at the two thieves. You see, in this passage and under this heading, what I want to do is I want to look at how these two thieves were similar, but I also want to look at how they were different. And when you look at the text, what you discover is that they had one thing in common and one thing that they didn't have in common. They had one similarity and one difference. Now, according to the passage, uh, the one similarity that these two thieves had was their condition, their condition. And the reason why I say that is because in Mark's, in Matthew's account, he refers to them as thieves. And in Luke's account, which is the one we are looking at tonight, he refers to them as criminals. And so when you put those two terms together, what you discover is that these two men were similar not just in conduct, but they were also similar in condition. The first word that reveals that they are similar in conduct is, is the word that Matthew uses. Matthew, in his account, refers to them as thieves. The, the Greek word there is plunderers or robbers. But, but what's interesting, and this is what most commentators say, in the first century, theft was not a capital offense. Just stealing something will not get you on a cross. And so what that means is, is that they were thieves, but they were most likely more than thieves. They had to be uh, murderers. They had to do more than just steal in order to end up on a cross. And what commentators guess is that actually these two men were zealots. They were insurgents. They were freedom fighters, just like Barabbas. So there's a good chance that these men followed Barabbas and out of all of them, the one who got replaced was Barabbas. So they are in jail waiting on their impending crucifixion. And they hear that one of them, their leader, 
is going to be replaced by someone else. So they were most likely zealots. They were most likely insurgents. They were freedom fighters fighting against Rome. That's the first thing we see. That they were similar in their crime. But that's not the only word that's used to describe them. We find out that not only are they thieves, but they are also criminals. According to Luke, the word that he uses there is criminals. And the reason why that word is so significant is because the word there, criminals, literally means a morally evil, wicked person. In other words, these were not good dudes. These were not good men. And so Matthew's word reveals their crime, but Luke's term reveals their condition. According to the New Testament authors, these men were sinful not just in their conduct, but they were sinful in their condition. That's what they had in common. See, but as we continue to compare and contrast these men tonight, they did not just have something in common, which was their condition. They also had something different about them. There was something that made them distinct, and it was their confession. When we look at their confessions, when we look at what they actually say from the cross, as the, the, day, as the day continues to go move on and, and move onward, what we see is that there's a distinction be- the, between these two men. And the difference is not their condition, but their confession. But their confession. Now, according to Paul in Romans chapter 10, Paul says that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord, we shall be saved. And so what Paul is doing there in that passage is he's essentially connecting what comes out of our mouth with what resides in our hearts. Jesus says something similar in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says that it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. So both Jesus and Paul, they connect what we say with our mouths with what we believe in our hearts. And so as these men confess, we actually start to hear their hearts. We start to understand their their verbal confessions reveal their internal conditions. And what's interesting is that at the beginning, both men are talking exactly the same. Both men, if you look at the text, they both are reviling Jesus. They both are attacking Jesus. They both are blaspheming Jesus. But then as the hours go by, because it was hours, as the hours go by, we see that the second thief starts to talk different. His confession starts to change. And the reason why his confession starts to change is because his condition starts to change. You see, but before we look at the second thief, what I want to do is I want to look at the first one. I want to look at the first thief because what we will see is that his verbal confession reveals his internal condition. Look look what the second thief says to Jesus while on the cross. Verse 39 of Luke 23 says this. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him. Everyone say railed. Saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. You see, so this first thief is in this moment. He is hanging next to Jesus and in the text, it says that he railed against Jesus. And in Greek, that, that, that word railed is a very weird translation. Because in Greek, what it actually means, it literally means to slander somebody. It means to attack someone, to blaspheme someone. 
And what's interesting is that it's written in the imperfect tense. So what that means is, is that he didn't just do it once, but that he was continually blaspheming. He was continually slandering. He was continuing talking bad about Jesus. And what's interesting about what he says in this passage is he says, if you are the Messiah, save yourself and save us. Now, here's what I just, what really stood out to me as I was looking at this man's uh, 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 statements to Jesus. It seems as if, if, you, if you're only looking at his language, it almost seems like this guy was confessing faith in Jesus, right? He says, if you are the Messiah, save yourself and save us. You see, but, but the problem was he wasn't displaying a saving faith. He was displaying a situational faith. It wasn't a saving faith that made him declare this. It was a situational faith. In other words, what he's expressing here is not self-denial, but self-preservation. He, he didn't see Jesus as an end in itself. He saw Jesus as a means to an end. He, he, he thought that his greatest problem wasn't his sin. He thought that his greatest problem was his situation. In his mind, his greatest problem wasn't his spiritual condemnation. It was his physical situation. And so he goes to Jesus and he says, save us. But it's not a saving faith. It's a situational faith. That is what he is declaring here. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we are told Paul is comparing worldly regret and godly repentance. And he says the difference between worldly regret and godly repentance is that worldly regret happens as a result of external consequences. And so when the world experiences consequences, they have worldly regret. But Paul says that we are not called to have worldly regret because of consequences. We are to have godly repentance because of conviction. And so what he is displaying here is not a saving faith, but a situational faith. What he is displaying here is not a godly repentance, but a worldly regret. He doesn't want Jesus to save his soul. He wants Jesus to save his skin. So that's the first guy. And his confession tells us a lot. But, but, but like I said, over time, as the hours went by, the, the second thief starts to change his confession. And the reason why his verbal confession is changing is because his internal condition is changing. It, it's almost as if as the, as the day goes on, he starts to think different. He starts to feel different. And the only person that could have done that is God himself. Only God can resurrect the dead. Only God can work in a man's heart. Only God can do that. And so as the time goes on, you start to see him see Jesus from a different perspective. And as his view changes, his confession starts to change as well. The, the first thing that we see him start to do or, or say different is that he starts to display a godly fear. And, and we know that because look what it says in verse 40. In verse 40, it says, but the other, this is the second thief, rebuked him, the first thief, saying, the word there, rebuke, is a very strong word in Greek. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God? Everyone say fear. fear. 
since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. In other words, he, he literally starts to display a godly fear. Like his, his language starts to change and he starts to display a godly fear. The word there, fear, means to worship, to respect, to revere, to have awe for something. So he, he literally is starting to worship Jesus as God and he wants to know why the other one doesn't fear God. So he starts to display a godly fear. But the other thing he starts to display is he starts to display a saving faith. It's not just a godly fear, but it's a saving faith. Because the next thing he says is this. Look at verse 41 and 42. He says, and we indeed justly, the word there justly literally means uh, deservedly or rightly or fairly. He's talking about their consequence. It's right. It is just. It is deserved. He says, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, talking about Jesus, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he says, and he, and he said, Jesus, remember me. Everyone say, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. So, so, so not only is he displaying a godly fear, but he is also displaying a saving faith. And we know that because he looks at Jesus and he not only starts to change the way he views Jesus, he starts to change the way he views himself. He is aware of his sin. So then all of a sudden he becomes dependent on a savior. He has an accurate view of himself. And so then all of a sudden he has an accurate view of Jesus. And we know he has an accurate view of himself because I told you that the word that he uses there is justly, fairly, deservedly, rightly. He, he looks at the other guy and says, hey, we deserve to be here. We deserve to be condemned. So he starts to have a, an accurate biblical view of himself. And the moment that happens, then he starts viewing Jesus different. And he says... Two things about Jesus that reveal a saving faith. One, he says, Jesus is perfect. He says, this man has done nothing wrong. So he sees Jesus as a spotless, perfect, unblemished sacrifice. But not only does he see Jesus as perfect, he also sees Jesus as powerful because then he looks at Jesus and he says, remember me when you come into your what? Kingdom. And so not only is Jesus a perfect substitute, but Jesus is also a powerful savior, a, a king. So he's seeing Jesus in his lowest moment. And he knows not only are you perfect, but you are powerful. So he doesn't display a, a situational faith. He displays a saving faith. Now, before we move on to the second point, here, here's the questions that I want you to wrestle with tonight. I, I want you to wrestle with this. As you approach God tonight, I, I'm not sure where you are tonight. I, I'm not sure what you are going through tonight. Maybe you are someone who this is your uh, 20th Good Friday in a row. You've been a Christian for a long time. And, 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 and to be honest, you're thinking more about the plans for Easter than the person behind Easter. 
right? It's just another religious box to check because this is what Christians do. And, 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 and so maybe for you, right, if you're anything like me, even though you might have already placed your faith in Jesus, saving faith, in this season, you find yourself having a situational faith. You find yourself worshiping Jesus because you kind of have to. It's Easter weekend. It's what we do. It's Holy Week. Or maybe you, you find yourself, and this is true of whether, someone, whether this is your, 20, your 20th uh, a Good Friday or your first ever or your first in a long time. Maybe you're coming here tonight and you're coming to Jesus, not necessarily for Jesus, but for, for Jesus to do something for you. Maybe you're coming to Jesus tonight, but you're coming not for uh, him as the end in itself, but as a means to an end. And that's true whether you are a follower of Jesus or not a follower of Jesus. You might be coming here tonight, and, and, and even though you, you want to have a saving faith, you, 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 you find yourself in a season where what you are actually displaying is a situational faith. And you're telling Jesus, man, I really want to worship you tonight, but until you answer this thing, Until you bring this test result back, until you bring my prodigal back, until you help me pay this bill off, until you change that person's heart. Jesus, I really want to worship you tonight. And I will if. Man, I really want to give you my heart tonight. And I will if. See, here's the problem, though. And here's how you know that situational faith you're displaying. Because if you're telling Jesus, I will worship you if, whatever the thing that comes after the if, that's your real God. If, if, if there's a, a negotiable and a non-negotiable, and Jesus is the negotiable, whatever the non-negotiable thing is, that's your Savior. Even if you claim to follow Jesus, your functional Savior is whatever comes after the if. Hey, Jesus, I really want to worship you tonight. I really want to give you my heart tonight. I really want to rely on you tonight if you do this. If you change that. If you answer this. If that's how you are approaching Jesus tonight, you are not approaching Jesus with a saving faith. You are approaching Jesus with a situational faith. And Jesus didn't come to be your assistant or your genie or your life coach. He came to be your savior and your king. Amen. The only faith God accepts, the only faith that God receives is saving faith, not situational faith. And so whether this is your first Good Friday or whether it's your 25th, I want you to wrestle with that question. Do, am I coming to God tonight? with a saving faith or a situational one. And so those are the two thieves. And I want to conclude tonight by looking at the two crosses. Now, here's the thing. Before I read this next section, I want you to see something. If you are more of a literal person, like if you're more of a logical person, you're kind of bothered by this whole two cross thing because there isn't two crosses, there's three crosses. And you're like, brother, I think you know how to count. 
I'm going to go ahead and give you the benefit of the doubt and assume you went to college or high school and so, so you know how to count, right? That there isn't two crosses, there's three crosses. But here's what I would argue. And we actually mentioned it in the video before this. Even though there are two, three literal crosses, figuratively, there's only two crosses. There's only two. So I'm going to read to you what Jesus says to this man, and then I'm going to talk to you about the two different crosses. In Luke 23, 43, Jesus says to the second thief, and he, Jesus, said to him, truly, I say to you, today, everyone say today, you will be with me in paradise. So Jesus responds to his request. Jesus, he, he shows up and he, well, he doesn't show up. He was already there, but, but he responds to his request. He, he sees that his condition has changed because his confession has changed, right? And, and so, so, so essentially he says, Jesus, I don't want necessarily you to get me out of this situation. I want you. It's not a situational faith. It is a saving faith. So he goes to Jesus and he makes his request. Now, here's what I need you to know. And maybe you've seen this stat, maybe you haven't, but there's a stat going around and here it is. Uh, the stat says 10 out of 10 people die. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen that stat, but it's pretty consistent. Every person on earth will one day die. And according to scripture, according to this passage, when you die and you stand before God, there's only two ways to go. You either die on your own cross for your own sin, figuratively, or you die with Jesus on his cross. That's it. Every person within the sound of my voice, every person watching online, every person on planet earth, when you die, you either die on your cross for your own sin or you die on Jesus' cross and he takes your sin and your place. And so the question that we have to wrestle with tonight is which cross are you going to die on? The question that we have to wrestle with tonight is who is ultimately going to take the penalty for your sin, for your iniquity, for your transgressions? Who is going to take the penalty? The question you have to wrestle with tonight is this. Are you going to die by Jesus like the first thief? Or are you going to die with Jesus like the second thief? And here's the thing. I, I need you to understand this. This, the, the rest of what I'm going to say is not just for the people here who have yet to place their faith in Jesus initially, but it's also for the people here who have placed their faith in Jesus but forget to do it continually. You see, because when I look at my life, even in this week, even in my preparation for this sermon, I have found myself forgetting the work of Jesus in my place, thinking that if I preach well enough, God will be happy with me. That if I do what I got to do, God will accept me. God will love me more. God will embrace me more. But that's not redemption, church. That is religion. 
And so even the people here in the room who have already placed their faith in Jesus, our tendency is to forget the work of Jesus in our place. And when we do, we, tr- we essentially try to die for our own sin. We, we try to earn our own salvation. We try to get something from God that is already ours in the gospel. And so what I'm about to say is not just for the people here who, all, who, who haven't met Jesus, but it's for the people here who already have, but have forgotten. You see, according to this passage, according to the Bible, according to the gospel, that there are two reasons why Jesus' cross is infinitely greater than our cross. That there are two reasons why dying with Jesus is infinitely better than dying by Jesus. The first reason is union with Christ. And the second reason is the grace of Christ. Let, let me give you the first reason. The first reason why dying with Christ is better than dying by Christ is because of union with Christ. You know, one of the things that we can overlook when we look at this passage, we can read right past if we are not careful, is that when we read what Jesus says to this man, in English, we can inadvertently put the emphasis on the wrong part of his statement. Like, and what I mean by that is this. For me, when I look at what Jesus says, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. For a long time, I put the emphasis on the word paradise. Like, whoa, that's crazy that we're going to be in paradise. But if you look at it in Greek, the emphasis is not on the word paradise. The emphasis is on the word with. We can miss that. Because if you have paradise and Jesus ain't there, it ain't paradise. The, the emphasis is on the word with. So, so, so what we see there is that the benefit of dying on the second cross is that we die not by Jesus, but with Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 2, what Paul writes there is absolutely fascinating, especially if you read it in Greek. Because what Paul says is that when we place our faith in Jesus, not only do we die with Christ, but then we are made alive with Christ, then we are raised with Christ, and then we are seated with Christ, which is already crazy enough. But when you look at it in the original language, it's all in the past tense. It's aorist tense, aorist tense, aorist tense, aorist tense, past tense. That when you place your faith in Jesus, you are so united with Jesus that in God's eyes, you're already dead with him, buried with him, raised with him, and seated with him, church. So because of our union with Christ, when God sees us, he sees us the way he sees Christ. He loves us the way he loves Christ. He treats us the way he treats Christ. He accepts us the way he accepts Christ. Don't miss that. That's crazy. (laughs) And then what's beautiful is that if that's true, that we are united with Christ, what the Bible teaches is that in order for us to take his place, he had to take our place. And so at the cross, Jesus received the wrath of God so that we might receive the welcome of God. At the cross, he took God's uh, condemnation so that we might get God's commendation. 
At the cross, he was numbered with the transgressors so that we might be numbered with the righteous. At the cross, Jesus was booted out of God's presence so that we might be brought into God's presence. Come on, church. You see, but it's not just union with Christ. The, the, the thing that really stood out to me this week was not just the benefit of being united with Christ, but the, the, the greater benefit is the grace of Christ. Okay, here's what I mean. And this is what's absolutely crazy about this passage. That, that as I was studying it, I'm like, man, where does this guy come off asking for Jesus to remember him? The, the, the audacity of this man, the, the boldness of this man. How, how dare he? After all he had done, after all he had said, this man in the final hour, in the final minute of the final hour, has the audacity to ask Jesus to remember him. He hadn't been baptized yet. He hadn't walked an aisle yet. He hadn't gone to Awana yet. He hadn't gone to growth track yet. And this brother had the audacity to ask Jesus to remember him. And the question is why? Listen, the only thing that could have motivated him to respond the way he responds, the only thing that could have motivated him, his only hope, his only answer was grace. That's it. It was grace. And that's why when he looks at Jesus, He's not bargaining with Jesus. He's not negotiating with Jesus. He's not brokering with Jesus. He's not manipulating Jesus. It says that he was pleading with Jesus. He's pleading for grace. It's the only thing he had. Grace, church. That's why the word that he uses is not a a religious word. He doesn't use religious language. He uses redemptive language. He doesn't say, repay me. He doesn't say, reimburse me. He doesn't say, recompense me. He says, remember me. Remember me, Jesus. Remember me, he says. The only thing he had is the only thing we have, which is grace. When you come to Jesus... The only way you receive anything is if you come with nothing. It's grace. It's the only way it works. You know, and here's what's interesting to me. If it's true that this man was a zealot, if it's true that this man was a freedom fighter, an insurgent, it means that he was not only a Jew, but he was a very passionate Jew. So so, so get this. What that means is he grew up learning the Torah. He grew up going to the synagogue. He grew up celebrating all the festivals. He grew up and he did his bar mitzvah. And yet, at the end of his life, even though he knew the law of God, the law of God could not save him. The law of God could not change him. It couldn't. But but here's the good news. The good news is that according to Titus chapter 2, 11 and 12, Titus, Paul says to Titus, 
He says that the only thing that can train us, the only thing that can teach us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions is not the law of God, it's the grace of God. So, so, so get this, you maybe left church and this is your first time back, but I promise that the reason why you left, it wasn't because of the grace of God, it was probably because you only heard the law of God. Do this and do that and don't go there and make sure you go over there. But Jesus didn't come to give us more law, he came to give us grace. It's the grace of God that saves us. It's the grace of God that changes us. It's the grace of God that transforms us. Don't miss that. If you're going to reject Jesus, make sure you reject the real Jesus. Not the pharisaical one you heard about growing up. That's why one of my, my favorite hymns is Amazing Grace. And and what's beautiful about the hymn, uh, Amazing Grace, is that according to John uh, John Newton, who who wrote Amazing Grace, according to the the lyrics of that song, he says, what enables the blind to see? Grace. What enables the lost to be found? Grace. What enables the wretch to be saved? Grace, church. Don't miss that. You see, but a religious person doesn't know what to do with this passage right here. A religious person who's either in Christianity or some other worldview, they don't know what to do with this passage. And the reason why they they struggle is because they don't get grace. They don't want more grace. They want more law. They want more rules. They want more religion. And so what they try to do is like, oh, okay, I get it. Well, maybe the reason why he responds the way he does It's because maybe he came from a better Jewish family. Maybe he had more verses from the Torah memorized. Maybe he had a softer heart. Maybe he had a more tender conscience. Maybe he was just sensitive to the things of God. No, I refuse to accept that as an answer. No, there was nothing better about him than the other guy. What saved him was grace. It was grace. If you try to minimize the problem, you will minimize the answer. If you try to minimize his sin, you will minimize the salvation. Stop minimizing what Jesus came to do for you. Grace. Only grace. Pure, unadulterated USDA approved grace. Come on. And and what I love about what Jesus says is Jesus looks at this man who's at the end of his rope. He, he, He looks at this man and he says, truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me. Don't miss that. Because I'm not sure what what, what you've heard before. I'm not sure what, what message has been preached to you. But Jesus says, today you will be with me. 
He doesn't say, hey, uh, after you go to purgatory, you'll be with me. He doesn't say, hey, after you read your Bible for a year, you'll be with me. He doesn't say, hey, after you get baptized, you'll be with me. He doesn't say, after you walk the aisle, you'll be with me. He says, today, you'll be with me. Today. And I want you to know, there's no such thing as hypothetical grace. There's no such thing. Jesus didn't come to bring hypothetical grace. He came to bring actual grace. So Jesus doesn't want to just give you grace tomorrow or next week or a month from now or next Easter or at the end of your life. He wants to show you grace today, it says. Today. Today. Right now. He wants you today. Just the way you are. He knows things about you that you don't even know about yourself. He is the only person in all the universe who knows you fully and yet loves you fully. And what I love is that the only gospel writer that includes this story is Luke. He, they, they, they all bring up the thieves, but the only one that goes out of his way to share with us the conversation between Jesus and the thief is Luke. And, and I think the reason why is because Luke is the only Gentile. He, he's the only outsider. He, 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 he's looking at this story thinking his whole, his whole uh, gospel is to people who are outsiders. So, so, so if you feel like an outsider tonight, if you feel like you've done too much, you've gone too far, if, if that's what you think, the Bible says that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so if you are broken, if you are disenfranchised, if you are a sinner, if you are all those things, guess what? That's exactly who Jesus came to save. Because he didn't come to bring guilt. He came to bring grace. Amen.